when I was reading this passage, um, I was thinking, I mean, it kind of strikes me, even though I knew it was the title going into it, um, how rebellious Jesus is, how surprising Jesus is, but how rebellious he kind of is just to the general order of things. And yet Jesus is the one who is setting everything right. So the question I kept on coming up when I was reading this was, when the whole world is bent on destruction, what does rebellion look like? It looks like love. Rebellion can look like love. A rebel in this kind of upside-down, broken, destructive kind of world is one who's obsessed with life, obsessed with grace, obsessed with love. Jesus is that kind of rebel. And so are we, for those who follow him. We're part of Jesus' kingdom, set against the kingdom of this world, and that means that we rebel against all those upside-down ways that we see, or we ought to. In a world of death, love is a rebellious act. Now, this kind of rebellion uh, doesn't often win many friends, Uh, as we see from this passage. The leaders of the kingdom of this world have their hearts set, and people just don't want to change, generally, ourselves included often. But there will be some who will join. There will be some who just can't help but be changed, because sometimes the darkness of the world will bring them in. Um, Sometimes it will be a surprise of love coming in in a way they didn't expect. Not many people will join, but some will. And Jesus, I think, for our church is looking for a few good rebels. People to join him in this kind of rebellious act of remaking this world, of bringing the wholeness that the world craves, bringing the wholeness that we crave. He alone, Jesus, has the power and authority to lead that and to do it. Now we only have one life with who knows how many years on this earth. Uh, Jesus is the only one worth following, the only one worth giving those, that time to, giving that authority to. Now, if we're with Jesus, that means we need to be constantly responding to him because we're going to be responding to something. And Jesus demands to be our priority. If we aren't responding to him and giving him the priority, we're not only disobeying the creator of the world, that means like we're also missing out on all the wholeness that Jesus offers us. We're missing out ourselves. So we need Jesus. As, uh, as scary as he might appear in Mark, and we'll get into why some of this stuff is a bit scary in a moment, uh, we need him because without him, where would we be? He gives life. He heals. And not just superficial needs. He heals our deepest need. And as we've kind of talked about before, all of us are broken, living in this kind of barren spiritual wasteland, looking for something to give us meaning, looking for something to give us us the wholeness that we crave. And we try some things on. We try things like, I'm a strong person. Or "I'm I'm an intelligent person. Or I can do it. I'm good. I follow the rules. I can handle it. I do what I feel. I don't need others, or I work hard. We try all these things on, and these can be the guiding voices in our heads. And when they are, before long, we realize just how far the path we've traveled. If we don't recognize Jesus as our leader, (laughs) thanks, our king, if we don't recognize Jesus uh, as as, uh, our king, the rebel of this world, and the bringer of a new one, we're bound to follow something or someone else, and every other path is just gonna let us down and we'll end up shriveled up. So Jesus comes to bring us the life that we need, the wholeness that we crave, and he has the power and the authority to do so. The way he teaches us about this morning is in declaring and demonstrating. That first Sabbath, verses 23 through 28, he says who he is. He tells us he's in control. He's the Lord. Basically, he has power and control over everything. And the next story on the next Sabbath, verses uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, 
Um, Jesus demonstrates his lordship. He shows that he's actually that lord that he says he is. But before we get into these stories, because the Sabbath is such a big, massive concept and would be common knowledge to the people during Jesus' time, uh, we need to learn a little bit about the Sabbath. So we're going to have a brief kind of walkthrough about what the Sabbath is all about. Because the Jews would understand all this, and we need to kind of figure out what's going on before we know when Jesus comments about it. If he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, why does that matter? Why should that be a big deal? Why should people want to kill him after that? Well, it's a big theme. So uh, if you have heard the, the term Sabbath and you aren't exactly sure what it is, um, it kind of can just maybe like be a bit of a churchy word maybe. Um, the Sabbath is a day of rest. That's all it is. Um, you have six days to work. One of them is made separate for resting, and that's what the Sabbath is. It's a day. It's a big biblical theme, and it comes right in the beginning of the Bible in creation. Because when God created the world, he worked for six days, and he stopped on the seventh day, and he set that apart, and he rested. God made it uh, separate from the rest. And that's all we get from Genesis. There's no rules, there's no kind of statement or anything, just that God was the first one to institute the Sabbath, and the first one to celebrate the Sabbath was God himself. And then if we fast forward to the Old Testament, when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, basically saying, here's how I want you to worship me, uh, one of those Ten Commandments was for his people to keep the Sabbath, to keep the seventh day holy. God elaborates and says, basically this is what he means, he says, uh, don't work, you have six other days for that. On the seventh, you should stop and rest. Remember, that's what Sabbath means, it means a day of rest. And because we reflect who God is and who we are as his people, we're supposed to imitate him by resting from our work, just as he rested from his. Now, later on, when the nation of Israel, so that, that's when Israel's wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, they're not really sure where they're going, but God is giving them basically his law, how to worship him. Later on, when the nation of Israel gets to go into the land, there's a land that God has provided for them, the Sabbath imagery crops up again, but in a different way. It says, this is like Joshua leading the people into God's land, God, the promised land. It's called a place of rest. In Joshua. So the land, it starts introducing this idea that Sabbath is not just a time, there's also a place element, it's a place of rest. If that's a little confusing, uh, the writer of Hebrews, which is much later on in the New Testament, uh, helps us a bit. It says that though Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, uh, this place of rest, Joshua still couldn't lead them into God's rest. So there was still a promise of rest that the Israelites were looking forward to that was not realized yet. So now let's look at Jesus' day here in uh, Mark 2 and 3. By the time we get to Jesus' day in this story, we find lots of writings on top of Scripture as to how a Jew ought to celebrate Sabbath rightly. There were 39 rules, uh, very specific rules, and we'll get to... Well, four of them are broken just in those kind of few words that we have there by the disciples, by Jesus and his disciples. But these are rules that everyone knew. Everyone knew these Sabbath rules because a Sabbath was more than just like a religious thing. It was how Jews identified. It was a marker of identity. To be Jewish was to celebrate the Sabbath. It was a one-to-one -one correlation. It became more than a rule. The rule became who they were, became part of who they were. And so here come the disciples Wapsing around, breaking four of these rules like they can do whatever they want. And it's a big deal. I mean, they knew what they were doing. And the religious experts, they know exactly what they're doing. It's like if I went to the Etihad on game day, found a city flag or a city something and burned it in front of everybody. That would be highly offensive to all the city supporters. Now, a United fan might be like, yeah. Fair play. Uh, yeah, there's no problem with that. <laughs> but I would, be, I would be killed if I was to do that. 
Um, and that, that's the kind of uh, offense. Uh, I mean, they, to be a city supporter means this is how you work. This is how you do life. To be a Jew meant this is how you do life. It would be an offense to them to not celebrate the Sabbath. So that's Jesus's day. But that, let's not stop there. Let's um, briefly look at what the Bible says about the Sabbath in the future. And the reason why we're doing this and just because I'm a theological nerd, which I am, uh, is just to understand a little bit of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about Sabbath. And what we find is the Sabbath is the end goal of all creation. The Sabbath is what all creation is hoping to get to. It's the trajectory that God has everybody on. It's complete restoration in every sense of the word. In Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we're given pictures of what this restoration looks like. It's the earth, but it's remade and reworked in such a way that it can be seen as completely new creation, completely restored and changed in such a dramatic way. So it's, that's a time and a place now all together at one. So before you had the Sabbath time, then there was like a Sabbath place. How those things work together? I don't know. Well, it all works together in the new creation when everything is complete. That's cosmic, cosmic recreation. It's when our hearts, worn out by the constant search, finally finds what they're looking for and finally can rest and can sit. It's when everything is how it should be, especially us. So the Sabbath is more than just a rule to follow one day a week. The Sabbath becomes our hope and our goal, eternity, because God is there. Now that means our little Sabbaths that the people of God are supposed to celebrate, a little bit of what we're doing now, a picture of this, these aren't an end to themselves. This isn't like a rule. This isn't kind of like, well, I'm a Christian, so that means I go to church. Well, there's good in that. But that's not the one reason. Another reason is because we're anticipating the future kingdom to come, the future Sabbath where everything will be made new, the restoration when everything will be surrendered to King Jesus. That's what we get to reflect here in our small little house with small little amount of people. That's what we're doing. It may not feel cosmic, but it really is. We get to join in that. So... That's enough about the Sabbath. Just give a little bit of a background before we get into these stories that are highly dependent on our knowledge about the Sabbath. Um, so let's look at those first verses, 23 to 28. Um, Jesus, this is the declaration. Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, which, now that you know a little bit of the background of the Sabbath, for Jesus to say, I am Lord of the Sabbath, like, whoa, that's a, that's a big statement now. That's more than just a day a week thing. So Jesus and his disciples are walking around. They're eating some grain on the edges of people feel, people's fields. Very, nothing controversial about that except it's the Sabbath. They're breaking four rules. They are reaping, they're threshing, they're winnowing and preparing all that little kind of thing of taking all those grain. Um, lots of rules to break in that little act there. But notice they're not breaking any biblical laws. They're just breaking the kind of scriptural writings, or writings that were on top of scripture. And some of the Pharisees, who are the uh, religious elite, saw this and they brought up the problem and of course the way they're speaking is as, as if it's common knowledge like why are they doing what's unlawful on the sabbath don't, don't they know what's going on well the disciples probably did know what was going on but jesus has this kind of biting reply he says don't you know the story of david of course they would they're the experts they, they know the story but jesus kind of goes and elaborates explains it a little bit but jesus is saying they didn't understand it they didn't get it they might know the words they might know the con like the story but they don't really know the story they're acting as if they don't understand. Now, um, you may not know the story of 1 Samuel 21 as well as a Pharisee. Probably don't. Probably none of us do. Um, here's a bit of the backstory of what Jesus is bringing up. Uh, David that he's talking about is the famous King David of Israel, the most famous king of Israel. This is 
This story, though, that Jesus is bringing up is before he becomes the famous king. At this point, David has been anointed as king, but Saul, the previous king, is still kind of on the throne, still reigning. And Saul, because he wants to stay on the throne, as power wants to do, it always wants to keep power, is searching after David, trying to kill him. And so David has a bit of, uh, he has his, 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 his boys with him, his crew, and they're running away, kind of hiding away from this uh, Saul who's trying to kill him. And eventually they're running low on provisions. So they all have, they're, they're lacking food, they're getting hungry. So David goes to the temple and the priest uh, he asks the priest for food. And the priest says, we don't have any food except for this. And it's this holy, consecrated, set-apart bread of the presence. You're not allowed to eat it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. David eats it. He gives it to the rest of his, uh, the rest of uh, the people, the guys who are with him. Now, people who weren't priests weren't allowed to eat that bread. That's the bread was for the priests. It was set apart, just as the way a Sabbath was set apart as a separate day. The bread was supposed to be set apart. It was holy. And David wasn't. I mean, he was king, but he wasn't really officially like recognized as king yet. So he wasn't allowed to eat it. It, it was really only for the priests, and yet the priests thought it was okay for him to eat. And it seems like the way the story is told, especially the way Jesus brings up this story, that it was okay for David to eat it. So what's the deal here? Is Jesus saying, like, ah, Old Testament rules, they don't apply anymore. It's the New Testament. I don't, that's not really how Jesus works often. Well, I think there's a few things that Jesus is probably trying to bring the Pharisees to see here. Um, well, first, when Jesus brings it up, the religious leaders are like, uh, Silent. They don't say anything, as far as we know, as far as this story is. is, Don't you know this story where all this stuff happened? And they're like, what do I say? I don't know what to say, because I don't really know what's going on here. Well, let's think for a second. Mark calls Jesus the Messiah. We talked about that the first sermon in the series. Messiah means anointed one, means king. Those are all kind of synonymous words. Uh, David was also a Messiah. He was a king. He wasn't the Messiah. wasn't Jesus, obviously, but he was a king. So David had already been made king, already been anointed king, but few recognized it. Jesus, in the same way, is already king, but few are recognizing it. Jesus is saying, if David was special and was allowed to eat that bread, then surely I, the king, the Lord of the Sabbath, am special and can do what I want, how I want. David, a king, is acting like a priest by eating bread only reserved for a priest. That, what that is in the Old Testament is a symbol of who God is. And Jesus is God. So it's not like Jesus is acting like David. David was acting like Jesus for that little sliver in his life. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is the one who leads us and cares for us and provides for us. And when we're hungry, he, give us, he gives us the food that we need. The normal rules of humans don't apply to the king of humans. Jesus is saying, I am something completely different. You don't know who I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And before we get any kind of response from the religious leaders, Jesus tells us that we aren't made for rules, that rules are made for us. I think what he's doing there is attacking the, the Jewish identity of how do, we, who, how do we know who we are? Is it by keeping the Sabbath? Or is it by the Lord who created the Sabbath? So he's not saying rules don't apply. He's saying, here's how to rightly look at the rules. Here's how to rightly look at what it means to worship me. And then he says, like, the really rebellious thing. Well, seemingly rebellious, except he's God, so it's actually not rebellious at all. He says, the Son of Man, which is a great way of how he loved to describe himself, is Lord of the Sabbath, even of the Sabbath. And also, I mean, if you've ever thought or come across people who um, think, oh, Jesus, 
uh, you've probably heard this before, he's a great teacher, he's a great leader, but he never actually claimed to be God. Like this is one of many examples of the complete opposite. This is him claiming to be God right here. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He created everything, including them, down to their fingers, they're wagging in his face. And what we see is Jesus' lordship is in direct conflict with theirs, and they don't like it. They don't want any part of it. And Jesus' lordship is in direct conflict with ours, and many parts of us don't like it, and many parts of us don't want any part of it. That's our natural state. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone, no matter what their station or title might be, telling us our business. Like the Pharisees, we'll be offended when this rebel king comes and tells us how we should be. We're offended because we think we have great qualities to offer, but they pale in comparison to his. Whatever we've built our identity on, other than him, it could be jobs, families, career, it could be whatever all the things are, and there's lots of them that we build our identity on. Whatever we care for the deepest, that'll be made suspect, questioned, and rattled until it's broken. And that's because Jesus loves us too much for us to hang on to those things. Everyone is going to be offended by Jesus. Everyone will be offended by Jesus, no matter what you believe. But if you follow him, you also get to be lifted up by him. You'll be made something more, given a freedom that you've never had. So giving up on your own identity which is a scary thing, but a very good thing, because Jesus gives us a new one. He gives us one of a priest, and he gives us the bread, and he tells us to eat. And as I read stories like this, what an encouragement to know that the people that Jesus called to himself weren't like the strongest or the smartest. They're these like working class, smelly fishermen, probably can't even read. And these are the people that Jesus is calling to himself. These are the people who get to join in with him. So the question for all of us is, does Jesus actually reveal God's grace and have authority over that, or does he not? If he does actually reveal God's grace and have authority over God's grace, then our lives get changed, and they get changed often, because we are often the opposite. If he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Move on, let's do something else. So that's how Jesus declares his lordship. Uh, and we don't just get lip service from Jesus. He doesn't just say this and then move on to another sermon. Um, and the way Mark writes, it feels like it's the very next moment, but it's another Sabbath at some other point. Jesus shows us what his lordship looks like. He demonstrates it. Uh, so this is how Jesus demonstrates his lordship on these next six day, the next six verses. It's another Sabbath. This time we're in a synagogue and Jesus is there and there's a man whose hand was shriveled, some kind of problem with his hand. We don't know exactly what. And the religious leaders all have their eyes on Jesus, knowing he loves to heal people, knowing he, that, what a horrible guy that must have been, love healing people, especially on that, sun, or on that Saturday, on their Sabbath. Uh, so Jesus, knowing what they were up to, made an example of this man. In front of everybody, he had the man stand up, and he teaches us about the Sabbath. He says, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? There's no answer. They should have jumped at the chance. The Sabbath is for life. It's for doing good. But there's no answer. And Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus is angry. He's disturbed because he's seeing their lack of faith. He's inviting them to, to life and, and they're refusing to join in. But in this, he heals the man's arm. And it's interesting that, uh, especially the NIV says, it was completely restored at the end of verse 5. How did the spiritual leaders respond? 
were they super excited that a man's arm was completely restored? Well, of course not. We know how the story goes, right? They're angry. In fact, they go right to murder. They're going to, to um, collude with the dark side, the people who are uh, with Rome, like this oppressive government, so that Jesus will die. In a world of brokenness, acts of restoration are going to be rebellious. What Jesus is doing here is he's teaching us what the Sabbath is about, yes, but more importantly, he's teaching us about who he is. He's already declared himself to be Lord, and now he shows us what kind of Lord he is. I mean, Jesus could have waited to heal this man. His arm was not, just having a shriveled arm didn't mean he was in mortal danger. He didn't need to do it publicly. I mean, the man stood up in front of the whole synagogue, in front of the whole what would have been a church. He's going out of his way to prove a point. He's being very rebellious in the way that he's, he's doing this. This is the punk rock Jesus doing things that he wants, boldly demonstrating his lordship the way he wants to demonstrate it. And he confronts the religious right and asks them what the Sabbath is for. Nobody answers. He points them to what the Sabbath was for, what it was always pointed to do, to do good, to bring life. And he doesn't just say it, he does it. He completely restores the man's arm. I mean, what would that must have been like to see that happen? Was it like immediate? Was there like a, a poof or like a cloud of smoke or did it slowly become, uh, what, did it make a sound? Like what in the world? Uh, that sounds crazy. One minute, problematic arm. Next minute, completely restored. I think we should have been in awe. Now, why would the Pharisees have such a reaction? Because nobody thinks they're evil in their own eyes. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. Um, one commentator said this, which I thought was helpful. He said, from the Pharisaic point of view, Jesus' word and action totally undermined their interpretation of the law, their piety, and their actions. So Jesus is turning the tables completely over. Jesus was not simply another scribe who had some kind of nice idea to, to, uh, to advocate he constituted a threat to true religion and ancestral tradition. When Jesus failed to submit to the scribal regulation of the Sabbath, he broke the tradition, and authority confronted authority. It was inevitable that conflict should ensue and the Pharisees should seek to destroy Jesus. In fact, in their eyes, because someone who blasphemes God or someone who, who, who uh, claims to be God who isn't, in their eyes, they probably think they're doing the right thing in some kind of dark way, because you're supposed to kill someone who does that. Leviticus 24 I've just been reading through Leviticus for my devotional reading and finished. Yes, you can give me a congratulations later. Now I'm in numbers, so... Um, but everyone seems righteous in their own eyes. The Pharisees probably don't think that they're evil. It's easy for us to be righteous in our own eyes. Not as easy to surrender what we think is righteous or what we don't think is righteous to Jesus. That's much harder. Jesus' grace and authority has exposed their hearts. I mean, have you ever like broken an arm or a finger or a collarbone or something and try and do normal things after that? It's really hard. Like it changes your life, even if it's just like a little like a little problem. What how was this guy's life changed? Did he have a family? Was he trying to support them? Was he born that way and now he can work and who knows what it was like? All we know is Jesus made this man whole and made him complete. The damaged thing was set right. They should have been in awe, but instead at least some were furious. We don't hear about the average person outside of the religious leaders. Were they excited? Were they happy? We don't know. But the religious leaders were not happy. Jesus' authority and grace has exposed their hearts. Jesus' authority and grace exposes ours. 
So Jesus' authority confronts our own claims to authority. And that's offensive because we like to think we're in control. We work, we get a paycheck, we pay for our fair rent, we pay for our, pay our bills. We're in control, of course, but that's just not true because Jesus is in control. I mean, who do you think allows you to work? Who do you think provides for the food you eat? Who do you think even makes the food grow that you eat? It's really Jesus, and that makes us angry because we want to be in control or we want some kind of claim for ourselves. And we like our control, and we think we're, we're good enough to do it. But if that's true, then how come we still end up anxious? How come we still end up depressed? How come 2.6% uh, of everyone in the UK, apparently, is addicted to cocaine? That's more pe- more pe- that means, if that's true for Manchester, more people are addicted to cocaine than go to church in Manchester. Surely we have a problem with control. Uh, and also, if that's true, then there are more doses of cocaine than Bibles in our city. We have a problem. And our own anxiety betrays the fact that we don't have what it takes to be in control. But the good news is that Jesus is, and he has our best interest. So we don't have to be. That's his authority. Jesus' grace confronts our self-righteousness. Why would the Pharisees get offended that he healed somebody else's hand? Jesus is undermining their whole system of self-righteousness. Their whole identity is built upon that. It has become their identity, and Jesus just pulled the rug out from underneath them. Of course they'd be offended. Of course they'd be irrationally furious and even murderous. So would we. But what do we do with that? Hopefully we bring that to Jesus. If not, we end up self-righteous and blind to it. And then Jesus comes along and shows grace in these extravagant and rebellious and surprising ways. And that's offensive to us. But here's, here's the great thing. There's another option for us to be other than the Pharisees, thankfully. Uh, we can be included. We don't have to be on the outside looking in. We can be included in this extravagant grace. Because the Pharisees are a picture of us in some ways, but I think even more so is that withered hand, that withered arm. Because we're broken. We're in need of restoration. We're completely helpless and useless by ourselves. And here comes the Lord and all his authority and all his grace and all his love and sets us whole. His grace pours out, and now we're whole. We're restored. We're useful. We're given purpose. Even when we don't understand what that purpose is, we have been given it. We once were relying on ourselves for meaning and for control on our own terms, and we thought we liked it that way, hanging down off a shoulder as an utterly useless and purposeless arm, and now confronted with Jesus. And he invites us to new life, to new identity, to new purpose, to be able to live out in that grace. And now if we zoom out and think of that big story of the Sabbath from creation to new creation, the kind of cosmic level of Sabbath action here. That's what Mark 2 and Mark 3 are really teaching us about, I think. That's really the setting. As amazing as personal change is by itself, it's actually something bigger than that that we get to be a part of because our whole world will change. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is telling us today through Revelation 21, I am making all things new. And that is true right now as we sit here. Jesus' authority and grace heals our hearts, completely restored and made whole. And when the Lord of the Sabbath died on the cross for us, he took on all the shriveled parts of ourselves and our world upon himself. And when he resurrected, he delivered himself whole. So for those who follow him, that's what we get to participate in. We get to be made whole. And we get to reflect that wholeness back to a world that's dying for it. Now we should ask him where he wants to go because this is surprising. This is not, it looks like it's all off script, though we know it's not. 
I think if you if we ask him where he wants us to go, at the very least, we're going to find ourselves in conversations we never thought we'd had we would have with people we never thought we'd have them with. So the causes or the missions in our hearts that we so desperately want to be a part of and so desperately want to see worked out in this world, whether people who are persecuted, whether refugees, people who are all of a sudden find themselves without a home, family and friends who don't know Jesus yet, children who need fathers and mothers, the care of God's creation. These are all parts of our shriveled world that our Lord of the Sabbath is healing even now as we speak. So for all who trust in Jesus for our wholeness, we also model our lives after him. So Jesus declares his, his, his lordship. That means we declare Jesus as Lord. That means the words we speak uh, should be the words of Jesus to others. That's a way to love people because it speaks to what they need the most. If we are in doing this, we are hoarding for ourselves a great treasure, but others are meant to get in on this. Of course, there's a right way to do this and a, and a proper way to do this, of course, but we have to use our words no matter the uh, fear of awkwardness that we might kind of... Uh, might uh, prohibit us. So that's the declaration. Also, Jesus demonstrates his lordship, and so we ought to demonstrate Jesus being Lord in our lives as well. We don't just use words. We live lives in congruence with those words. We sacrifice for others, those who are in our church and those who aren't yet. We're generous. Like We collect socks. We don't collect socks because we're nice or because we really like reach out to the community. Maybe those things are true. Hopefully they are. Um, but we're generous because... Uh, we want to follow Jesus, and that's what Jesus tells us to do. And that's the one, the main reason why we do it. Our lives and our words should point to the gospel. Both are needed and both are necessary. Now, if you're overwhelmed, um, well, good. That's good. We should be overwhelmed. We're being a part of remaking this entire world? What? I can't do that. You're right. You can't. You were never meant to. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. We're not meant to do this by ourselves. Jesus doesn't lead us and leave us to just figure it out. He gives us the gift of his Spirit. Now, just as David gave the bread to those who followed him, Jesus gives himself to those who follow him. We're free from relying on ourselves. He gives us the gift of his spirit when we choose to follow it, and that's what keeps us going. And that means the Lord of the Sabbath is with us, and we're with him. And as we follow him, he provides for us. We're hungry, he feeds us. We're thirsty, he gives us drink. If we're part of Jesus' family, he's already done that work on the cross. It's already done, it's already finished. Our souls, our being, once broken and shriveled, are now completely restored. What a rebellious act for a loving God to take in rebels like us to show him, to show his love. And even when our old rebellious ways pop up, and they do, more often than we even think they do, because we always think ourselves better than what we are, he's still there giving us what we need. So let's surrender. Let's receive that. Now for those who follow Jesus, communion, this table, uh, is open to you. Jesus is the host. Jesus is providing this. And he's inviting you to trust him for everything. Now, if you don't trust Jesus, instead of joining in with this, um, think about maybe something that you might have learned, uh, even spend time praying about it. As maybe the question might be, for all of us, is what Jesus offers better than what we already have? If it is, this table is for you. So we look back to Jesus' work on the cross. His body was broken so that ours would never be. And his blood was poured out so that we can be included in this new world. And through that rebellious, self-sacrificial act of love, we get to be here today and to participate in this together. So we look back to the cross, but we also look forward 
to where Jesus is leading us, the new creation, where one day everything will be completely restored. That's going to happen one day. It will actually happen. We take in thankfulness for what Jesus has done and humility and his love being set upon us and in hope of this new world that Jesus is bringing. And as we go on with our declaring and our demonstrating, we get the spirit to empower us through that and we get to reflect a small bit of this hope to others.